Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. It's another exciting episode. America Adapts visits Harvard University to talk adaptation planning in East Boston. Stick around. So this past spring, I was invited to come and record a podcast at Harvard's Graduate School of Design end-of-semester studio course. In this design studio, a group of graduate students worked with the community of East Boston on an adaptation plan. As you can imagine, it was an exciting studio to cover, meeting some of Harvard's best and brightest, focusing on helping one of their local communities, East Boston, and discovering the challenges of adapting in this region. So I want to give you a brief description of my time there so the episode will make sense. It's one of those episodes where I talk to multiple people. So there will be three groups of people that I talk to. First, three Harvard professors leading the course. And then there's Dr. Jesse Keenan, who is an advisor for the course. Second, there are members of the East Boston community there and planners from the Boston area that had an interest in what these students were presenting. And finally, yes, the students themselves. I'll let these guests give more background on the East Boston community and why it's a prime area for this sort of planning. Students were grouped into projects and were presenting their findings throughout the day. I was invited to record a podcast, and as I watched these presentations, I was also asked to be a critic of their work. Quite honestly, I didn't provide much criticism. I was too busy rushing between rooms, pulling people aside to interview, and then rushing to the next room. It was a day-long event followed by a much-needed after-studio party on the Harvard campus with beer and pizza for everyone. I finished up my interviews at this party, and the students were much relieved at this point of the day. So I tell you all this so you have some context on how the day unfolded, and please keep track of the introductions of people, because I'll be switching between community members and planners, course professors, and the actual students. There was so much content delivered, so this podcast represents a sliver of what was done. But I hope it gives you a grounding in the great work that Harvard is doing and the need for this adaptation work in local communities. I think Harvard's studio course can serve as a model to other universities looking to collaborate with local communities on adaptation in the years to come. So again, I talked to quite a few folks representing different groups. Please take a look at the show notes to find links to these people. One of the main groups the students worked with was the Neighborhood of Affordable Housing, or NOAA. Please take a look at their website to learn more about the innovative work they are doing in the Boston region. My Harvard host for the event was a previous podcast guest and Harvard professor, Dr. Jesse Keenan. Thanks, Jesse. I didn't have a lot of time, but it was a real treat to visit some of the sites on the Harvard campus when I wasn't recording. I'd been to Harvard once before, decades ago. I'd like to say it was because I was thinking of going there, but I was just walking across campus to find a comic book store in Harvard Square. But here I was, back at Harvard. The circle was complete. Okay, on that was a lot. But again, sometimes you need to, some context to jump into these on-location podcasts. Also, this podcast is not a newscast, but on occasion it's necessary to acknowledge what's happening in the world. Hurricane Harvey has hit and has decimated Houston. The city is still dealing with receding waters, but I hope to use this podcast to talk with relevant people about what's next for Houston and how it might approach future disaster planning to incorporate climate change planning. For my listeners in the Houston area, I hope you are well and you are getting the help that you need. Okay, now some housekeeping. First off, thanks to those adapters supporting America Adapts. We are now a nonprofit organization and accepting donations. Go to americadapts.org and you can easily find the donate page where you can give one-time donations or better yet, a recurring monthly donation. For the price of a large cafe latte a month, you can support a podcast bringing you the best and brightest in the world of adaptation. I want to thank those who have already generously donated through the Flipcause donate page. And you can find these links in, on, in the show notes. Just look down on your smartphone. And I truly appreciate all the support that's already come in. The long-term support support will ensure the podcast grows and has the resources to record on location. For foundations and corporate donors looking to learn more about the podcast, please contact me at americadapts at gmail.com. Also, I'm headed to the annual Landscape Architects Conference in Los Angeles in late October. I'm being sponsored by a corporate donor to see what the field of landscape architecture is up to in the field of adaptation. If you are interested in sponsoring this type of podcast, please contact me for further information. Okay, finally, my next guest is Dr. Pat Michaels of the Cato Institute. It is a fascinating discussion about the Cato Institute's role in adaptation planning. And are they prepared to get past much of the climate denialism that exists on the right? Tune in. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Okay, it's time you adapters take a visit to Harvard University. (music) 
Hey, everybody. I'm back with Professor Stephen Gray, who's an assistant professor of urban design here at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Hey, Stephen, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm here to talk about the core planning studio, and I wanted Stephen to sort of give some context of what the students will be doing. Yeah, so the core planning studio um, at the GSD uh, is a studio that is the second part of the first-year graduate trajectory or sort of course structure. And essentially, the second semester studio for planning students is a real-world problem with a client that has a significant community engagement piece um, as well as an implementation piece. So those are sort of the overarching framing principles and learning objectives of that course. This year, the way that we um, are running it, every year we choose a different site, we choose a different context, um, we choose a different set of issues to take on. And we figured that in the context of uh, all of the planning that's going on in Boston, the recent release of the Climate Ready Boston strategy, which is a sort of uh, overview of the impacts of climate change, heat island effect, flooding, et cetera, in Boston, that, and as well as the climate, uh, the political climate, which, as we know, is, is not very favorable for um, many immigrant communities. We decided to focus on East Boston. East Boston is a neighborhood that is um, over 50% uh, immigrant community, foreign-born. It is a community that relies more than 50% of the population on public transportation, so the blue train line, which runs through the neighborhood. And it's also a neighborhood which, according to the most current and sort of most detailed projections specific to Boston for sea level rise will be roughly 50% underwater in the next 50 to 70 years. So you're working with East Boston, but did the members of that community reach out to you or is this something you have a longstanding relationship with them? So every year we sort of tap into our networks and sort of figure out who we know and what challenge we can take on and have students sort of mobilize around. This year, we, through our contacts, uh, actually through the Boston Society of Architects, I used to be on the board there, we reached out to Gretchen Rabinkin, who is the executive director of the Community Design Resource Center, which is sort of housed in the Boston Society of Architects. Um, and she is on the board of NOAA, the Neighborhood of Affordable Housing. This is actually kind of a, an ironic name because their logo is a boat sitting in water and they're looking at housing and pretty soon most of this neighborhood is going to be looking at a situation where they might be underwater. Uh, so it's going to take on a whole new meeting. But they have been really focused on helping educate the public in their community and uh, develop a series of pilot projects which help reduce vulnerability for uh, the most vulnerable population. So two of the pilot projects, for example, are helping people not only understand that they should, but also financially and logistically clear out their basement. So that should a flood come, they won't lose all of their belongings. Or perhaps if they're living in a basement apartment, moving out of that basement. Um, another pilot project is really looking at planting trees to reduce heat, heat island effect. So the temperature we're looking at, I think uh, most of the summer being days over 90 degrees now. And although Boston as a whole is roughly 38 to 40% tree canopy, East Boston is only about 10%. So they're really focused on, on these major issues. That framework that they've developed is called climate care. And so under their climate care umbrella, they have about $100,000 Kresge grant to do this work. We joined on with them sort of right at the beginning of them developing their climate care strategy. Um, we discussed with them the, the different focus groups that they would have. So they were already thinking about transportation and mobility, economic development, and public realm. And so we sort of said, you know, maybe you should also be thinking about housing. Maybe you should also be thinking, obviously, they were also thinking about natural systems, but help them flesh out sort of the different areas of focus that they would have. And they were creating essentially a bridge between the public sector and quasi-public sector. So uh, Massport and these sort of larger institutional actors and the needs of the community. Because Typically in cities, there are sort of people, these larger actors have their capital investment plans, they have their strategies, they have a five-year outlook, um, and that they're sort of siloed. Uh, and so actually the Kresge grant is to try to form stronger connections between the resilience planning that these large institutions are doing and the resilience planning that the neighborhood needs to do. And the students sort of plugged into that and we took on each of these different topics. So mobility, op uh, public realm, natural systems, housing, and economic development to really understand from a community perspective what this means to them, uh, as well as from an analytic vulnerability perspective. Okay. So you have students who sign up for this at the beginning of the semester. Could you kind of briefly describe 
what they go through this semester as as part of the studio. So the studio is divided into a few sections. Some of them happen sort of in parallel, and some of them are have more focus. There are essentially five parts to the studio. The first part is community engagement. So the students are given the option to sign up for a number of different community engagement exercises or sort of uh, techniques. Those are inter- intercept surveys where they're stopping people on the street at the subway station at the grocery store. There's an online survey team that creates a sort of taps into the social media networks. Um, there's a group that focuses on community-based organizations, identifying who those actors are and meeting with them and talking about um, the issues that they're facing with their constituents. There's a group that met with developers to understand what's the development context, what are their agendas, what are their what is what's their outlook. There's a group that met with city officials, state officials, um, and then these uh, sort of quasi-public uh, institutional groups. That's the first part of it. And in parallel, they also take on one of those five topics, uh, the transportation, housing, and economic development, uh, natural systems, or public realm in separate groups. And they choose anything they want within that topic to research and visualize in terms of vulnerability within that classification or within that that area. And those happen in parallel because it's often hard for students to actually schedule on other people's schedules to do the interviews. So we don't want them kind of sitting around waiting for assignment two. So those two are in tandem. The third assignment comes from a synthetic sort of understanding of what they've heard from the community, um, what they've looked at in their sort of uh, vulnerability analysis. And then they develop a set of recommendations within each of those five categories. And those are high-level recommendations, such as programs for um, including more diversity of vendors in the airport, which is in East Boston. So that actually roughly 50% of, of East Boston is the Boston airport. So that there's a huge history of contention between the airport and the neighborhood. So how do you begin to heal some of those and mend some of those wounds? And other sort of high-level recommendations, there's an affordability issue. So how do you change some of the current programs to to result in more affordable housing options? How do you um, leverage the private sector more? What sort of policy initiatives do you create that can uh, begin to address some of the vulnerabilities, some of the issues that you heard from the community, and then some of the larger um, analytic issues? So that's the third part. The fourth part is actually where the students then break from their teams and they develop their own proposals. So what project do they see that really draws from all of the different groups? So they, they're now no longer sort of focused within only transportation or only natural systems. They now tap into all of that research and develop a proposal that they see as like an interesting project. So some of those proposals are more urban design oriented. Some of them are policy proposals. Some of them are economic development proposals, but they all sort of tap into the body of work that we've cultivated throughout the semester. The fifth piece is really students being responsible for hosting and showcasing their work in a community setting. So this year we met um, and we reserved a room in the East Boston Public Library, um, which is right on the greenway that divides the highway and the airport from the rest of the neighborhood. And it's really kind of a, a central community asset. And the students uh, ordered food. We ordered local cuisine, um, really excellent Mexican food. And we invited all of the people that the students interviewed throughout the process, uh, as well as a number of other community stakeholders. Um, and it really gave the students a chance to test some of their ideas that they develop through this process with the community and with the the community-based organizations to see how they resonated back to the community as well as to the public sector. And that's really how it pans out. And tomorrow we'll be getting sort of presentations from each of these, and it'll be much more of a a formal um, review and critique setting um, in the Graduate School of Design where we have professional experts from internally to the school, as well as um, national experts coming in to sort of give their feedback and critique of the student projects. So over the course of the semester, there's a lot of moving parts here. Were there any sort of hiccups or fires that you encountered? Any stories like that you could share? Or did everything kind of go smoothly for the students? I think actually there was there was a really interesting little moment that happened. So last night at the open house, we had a number of city officials, among others, come through and they were looking at the projects and they were kind of whispering to me which ones seemed the most viable or the most necessary or the most realistic in a way. And there's a group of students who had been working on a, a sort of a, a rezoning, which took into account the fact that most of the new development in East Boston is happening in highly critical areas that we know are susceptible to category one, two or three storms now, and that in the next 50 to 70 years, potentially will be underwater multiple times a day um, with tidal fluctuation. And they basically said, 
we need to have a climate-based zoning uh, strategy. We can't use this current zoning strategy. And there are a number of hills. So this part of, so East Boston actually used to be five hills and it was filled over time. And so those hills are still out of that sort of vulnerable territory. And so the students are actually proposing a rezoning of a climate-based zoning, which says some of the land actually has a free uh, development freeze. You don't build anything. Some of the land, should it be hit by a storm, there are only certain ways that you can redevelop. And then up in the hills, which is mostly single-family residences, that there needs to be a new typology and a new strategy that allows for the character to remain such that people don't feel that they're, you know, the investment in the home and the neighborhood that they're accustomed to will drastically change, but that it actually does need to drastically change in terms of density and population. And so developing a sort of a form-based code around that. One of those students was offered an internship based on their proposal and their graphic representation. It was pretty compelling. Did they take it? It was just last night that they were offered, so we'll see. But but that's a sort of the opposite of what you asked, but it was a situation where we warned that team that they would probably have a pretty contentious and controversial proposal and should expect people to be pretty upset by it. And the city saw that, yes, this is something that is pretty upsetting to a lot of the public, but this idea of retreat and rethinking the way that we develop is also something that the city is really struggling with how to begin that conversation. And this kind of simple visualization and proposal takes it further than they have invested in so far in this thinking because to invest resources into something means you're going for it from a public perspective and they haven't decided that they feel comfortable going for that yet. So it's sort of like they're interested in it because of its provocative nature and because it is actually sort of so controversial because they know that this is the direction we need to be going with the conversation. Okay. Thank you. And I think when I have a chance to talk to the students tomorrow, I might get some juicier stories out of them, what happened over this last semester, but uh, I appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, adapters. We are here on the campus of Harvard University, and we're at the Graduate School of Design, and I am with... Rosetta Elkin. Hi, Rosetta. So who are you? So I'm an assistant professor of landscape architecture at the Graduate School of Design, but I sort of wear two hats because I'm also the co-director of a concentration in the Master of Design Studies in Risk and Resilience. Okay, so what is Risk and Resilience here at the Graduate School of Design? It's a post-professional degree that falls, in, as I mentioned, in the category of a Master of Design Studies. So there are several concentrations in MDES. We're one of them. At risk and Resilience in particular, I, I co-direct with Diane Davis, who is the chair of Urban Design and Planning here. And she really comes at it from a planning perspective, and I come at it from a landscape perspective. So we like to think of the program as, as bridging the gap between the social sciences and the natural sciences, if you will. I'm assuming you work with external clients. Who would they be? We don't have clients. Um, academic settings, you know, we don't work for anyone. In fact, if anything, we're trying to pursue research that may not find a client very easily, may not fit nicely into a kind of proposal or budget. Research, it, it's a kind of, research is a fluid process. And it's, it's no longer something that you can break down into a kind of step one, two, three. Moreover, design research is, is even less linear and it really unfolds at the same time as you're thinking about space, thinking about policy, speculating on long-term change, of course, adaptation, ecologies, and, and of course, the social complexes and political complexes that are embedded in those conditions. So, you know, dial back for a minute. Risk and Resilience invites students that want to pursue a postgraduate degree whereby they have found the limits to their discipline. So they've seen the limits of architecture. They can't necessarily work along the timescales and the complexities of, let's say, very slow creep sea level rise. And they don't know how to engage, let's say, with humanitarian aid at a global scale or reconstruct after a major seismic event. Architecture school, professional practice itself, doesn't train you for that. So uh, the MDES, and in particular Risk and Resilience, tries to pick up on that disciplinary periphery and really train students in design thinking to take on some of the most complex challenges. So I imagine just this being the school design, you think about climate change, you think about resilience and adaptation. Do they need to get grounded in sort of the fundamentals of adaptation? Is that sort of coursework required? Is it needed? In the post-professional program in particular, you really curate 
your own education. So we have some students that are more interested really in violent conflict and others that are more interested in policy around environmental change, for instance. We even have students that look at it from a very territorial perspective, others from an atmospheric perspective, others from an oceanic perspective. So the students come in with a very particular or, or are accepted based on a particular research agenda, and then we help them really cater the courses to suit that ambition. So for those of you out there listening, I am in Gunn Hall at on Harvard campus, and it's really just the coolest building. It's an open-air area, and I'm looking around at a lot of very tired-looking students. Now, why is that? Well, you happen to arrive here on what we call the trays, which are uh, levels of studios that are sort of stacked and, and shifted. You've arrived here on the day before final reviews. So this is really the, the tiredest you'll see students. And it's amazing that they come back completely energized, of course, after the reviews. But they'll have a good night's sleep tonight and uh, be ready to present in the morning. So I shouldn't go around introducing myself and asking what kind of movies they're seeing this weekend and just <laughs> shooting the shit with them. No, but you could ask about their projects if you'd like to. That's for sure. That's uh, They're not necessarily seeing movies, but they're obsessed with their work, and that's a kind of passion that we do like to cultivate and within reason. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're back into this core planning studio. I'm with Professor Kathy Spiegelman, the Vice President of Campus Planning and Development at Northeastern University. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So I'm here to talk more about this studio planning, and I was told that you could tell me a bit about East Boston. We dug into it a little bit, but, you know, it, it was chosen. Why was it chosen? And you could sort of describe why East Boston was a good sort of target city for this studio. Sure. So Dan and Stephen and I, who teach this course, taught it last year, and it's been taught several years before that, focusing on Massachusetts gateway cities, which are cities that the state has been anxious to do planning around because they tend to have economic characteristics of the population that have certain needs um, in urban areas. But this year, we all got together and we suggested looking at East Boston because what's happening across the country and happening in Massachusetts about undocumented immigrants and populations that are dealing with major climate threats uh, because of uh, sea level rise and flooding possibilities are right here on the blue line in Boston, in the neighborhood of East Boston. And so we reached out to some people who have been doing some work in East Boston and got ourselves connected to NOAA, a local community organization that actually had a grant to look at how to get the community voice into climate change and planning for climate change. And so we married that to our student objectives, which is getting them to start by going in and learning what the issues are in a community, doing some of the typical planning research, matching that to what they heard from people in the community, going to the neighborhood and observing what was happening, and then start putting together some planning proposals that actually might be able to address some of the issues and vulnerabilities that they identified. For some of the students, they stuck with the focus on climate change and risks that are happening to the land areas in East Boston and the fact that there's a lot of development happening in very uh, flood risk water damage areas. But for some of the students, the community engagement process took them more towards trying to connect to the community interest and anxiety about social resiliency issues. And that it was very hard to get people to engage with future planning for climate unless you started by addressing the issues that they face every day in their neighborhood. So I'm trying to visualize this kind of interface of students working in East Boston. So literally and logistically, how did they go over to East Boston? Who members of the community, who were they talking to? Were they really kind of, were they talking to just local leaders or were they really talking to people that were kind of on the ground? So we divided up the students. There's 44 students in the class. We divided them into different groups. So some of them uh, went and talked to real estate developers. Some of them went and talked to local government officials. Another team went and talked to state government officials. Another team went to um, a focus group with youth in the neighborhood. And another group went to talk to seniors in the neighborhood. And then there's a group that did surveys in two different forms. There was one group that did an online survey and another group that actually went and did an intercept survey in the area. So we tried to pick up different ways 
of finding a way to hear the community voice from different parts of the population. So did anything surprise you of what they encountered this semester? I think the big surprise was that we went out there asking them questions about climate change and they wanted to talk about something else. We didn't anticipate that. So you just didn't talk about climate change at all? You just quickly pivoted? No, I think it, depending on the group that we were talking, that the teams were talking to, they either just listened to what people's concerns were, or they tried to ask them specific questions about, are you doing anything? Are you worried about your house? Asking developers, are you doing anything to make what you're building in the neighborhood more resilient? Talking to the government officials about, you know, what are you trying to do to, to help protect people from what might happen in terms of the changes in the sea level rise. Well, I imagine the community of East Boston was probably happy that the Harvard was dedicating some resources to doing this, but do you sense that now that the semester's over and we're going to be hearing from the students tomorrow, but is there something that's going to be operational, that they, there's something that they can do with this now? Do they feel like, okay, they're going to just go back to Harvard? What, what happens now? Well, interestingly, we were in the East Boston Library with an event last night preceding the final reviews for the students, where each student group with a proposal had two boards that they put up on easels in the East Boston Library. And we invited all the people we had interviewed and encountered in that community engagement process at the beginning of the semester. And a number of them showed up and got to stand and engage with the students about their ideas. And actually, there were several that some of the government officials who were there and some of the community members and people from the NOAA organization that we had been working with were very excited about that they could actually take and work with as they go forward with their activities with the population of East Boston. Just one more question. People listening to this podcast are very curious about what Harvard's doing here. And I think, you know, this is a very unique program. The more I learn, the more impressed I am. But I'm just curious that after the fact, is there anything that, you know, reports, articles, is there a way to replicate this? Let's say Miami, let's say other cities around the country want to learn from this process. Is there anything that they can do? So I think that is the unique thing about doing something like this at Harvard because you have a faculty and you have students who are connected all over the world. So you have the chance to either take some of the really good ideas and put them into another studio with next year's students or with graduate students, or you have the chance of actually getting clients from around the world, governments interested in a particular idea, and then getting the expertise of people at Harvard to help them move forward with that idea. So the semester produces a report a book that has all of the student work, but then it's really left to where the students go in terms of employment and internships and where the faculty goes in terms of their research projects to figure out whether there's any way to actually build off of that. And again, the fortunate thing about being at Harvard is there is there are frequently people watching and listening. And so you can actually take some of those student ideas and make something happen. Well, those people out there hiring adaptation professionals, um, these people will be graduating soon. But thank you, Kathy. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I'm back. I am here with Amy Chester. Hey, Amy. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Where are you from? I'm from Rebuild by Design. Okay. Briefly, what is Rebuild by Design? It sounds like a cool name. It is a pretty cool name. We started after Hurricane Sandy as an initiative of HUD and NGO partners and ran a big international design competition to think about how to use the Disaster Recovery Fund smarter and better to build forward. And through that competition, we had 10 teams and ultimately HUD awarded a billion dollars to our projects that are being implemented right now. We have since uh, transformed that model to help cities address different challenges of different sizes. And we're working across the U.S. and some in Latin America. So you're based here in Boston? No, I'm based in New York City. Oh, okay. So how did you end up here today? Dan was the was one of the design team leads for the Innerborough team during the competition three years ago. All right. So there's so much content being thrown at us today, and they had us as critics sitting in on different things. So what's your impression so far? I think it's been a great day. I love seeing how students have to actually figure out how to solve a real-world problem, which doesn't always happen in design school. Um, I think that this is very grounded in reality, and they had to show how the research from the beginning of the semester informed their projects for the end of the semester. I also think it's really interesting that they're not all design interventions. Well, so to me, the idea of designing smart for climate change, it's you can come up with some good ideas, but sometimes government gets in the way, regulations get in the way, existing policies. 
And the presentations today, you know, they, at least some of them offered a pathway forward to saying, you know, we're going to be realistic here. And did you get that sense? I definitely did get that sense. But after a lot of them, I asked those same questions. You know, what would be the government impediments? Are you sure you can do it? What's the market for that? How do you know what the cost would be? So I think it's always hard um, with just a semester to get really deep into these projects. But these students really understand the intersection between community needs, climate change, and real life, and I would love for them to continue on with these same ideas. So what's on your plate next for what you're doing? We're about to launch a big competition in the Bay Area on May 31st, which is going to be modeled after what we did in the Sandy-affected region. Um, This will be through the nine counties of the San Francisco Bay, and it will focus on primarily sea level rise, but we'll, of course, have to address other issues like earthquakes and equity and transportation and the very meaningful challenges that are happening today. Okay, just one more question. In what you do as you try to factor in climate change, what is, I guess, the biggest difficulty in integrating climate change in your message about design? Well, it's an interesting question. I think it's really important that when you're talking about something that is a generation or two generations away, you have to also address the problems that communities face today. Otherwise, they're not going to show up. And as a Floridian, I would just vouch for my my Miami neighbors. They're saying they're dealing with it today, but maybe some other cities aren't. They are, and they were actually kind of late to deal with it because they have been experiencing flooding for quite some time, and they're now just getting started. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thanks. Hey there, I'm here with one of the students in the studio class. Who are you? I'm Alice Hinterman. I'm a master in urban planning student at Harvard. So we're about to get started with this, so we don't have much time. But so what you do recently to share some of this information, it was at, uh, you went to went out in the community? It was at the public library in East Boston, and we had an event where we brought information for our most recent project and shared it with community members. People came and asked a lot of good questions. Were you nervous at all presenting to them? You know, it was fairly conversational, and so I think it was a good way to introduce people to Okay, guys, I'm back. I'm here with Chris Bush. Hey, Chris, who are you? I am Senior Waterfront Planner, and I work with the Boston Planning and Development Agency. So you were invited here to be a critic. What did that mean to you? Uh, well, it was really uh, an interesting experience. I've, I've got a lot of background dealing with waterfront issues throughout the city and a number of projects through the years with East Boston. So it was interesting to get sort of a fresh perspective from students and, and you know, a lot of great creative ideas as to how we can build resiliency into our waterfront infrastructure as well as the social fabric of uh, the East Boston community. I am not from the area, and I and I hear things about East Boston. It's a blue-collar area. It's right there by the airport. And so you look at these somewhat, I mean, well, some of them are really sophisticated projects. Do you think they are a good fit for East Boston? Yeah, I think it's it's a, a starting point. I think there's a lot of sort of creative seeding of, of ideas and concepts that will work there. I mean, it is a, a changing, very dynamic community. There's currently a lot of development that's occurring along the waterfront, and it's an interesting mix of uses that are integrated into this uh, this area of the city where we've got a lot of waterfront industrial mixed with new residential with, uh, you know, fairly substantial and important ethnic communities within there. So I think that there is, is fertile ground for a lot of new and creative ideas, the types of things that are being thought of and brought forth today. So I saw a lot of the crit- there's and so people kind of visualize there's critics that are reviewing all these different presentations and people are scribbling notes. Is there any sort of follow up that you have in your head? Yeah, I mean, I think I want to delve into some of the uh, the background information and precedents that these these folks have come up with. They've taken a lot of time and effort to come up and formulate these plans and ideas. I think there were some interesting surveys that were conducted uh, within the community. I'd like to follow up on and some of the design concepts as well. I think may uh, serve to really help us out in thinking about sort of planning policy initiatives the city is going to need to be coming forth with in future years to have a more resilient uh, design thought process for for Boston and our zoning and, and land use controls. So you guys are quite lucky to have the resources of these different universities in Boston. You must be thinking recruitment time. There's some really <laughs> remarkable students. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're very, very fortunate to have, you know, these 35 universities in and around Boston. You know, we, we have a, a steady flow of, of interns that are coming through our agency and, and a number of city departments and agencies throughout the year. Um, and really, uh, you know, it's, it's the student population that functions as the talent source that's a really foundation for a lot of the startup economy 
economy, a lot of the businesses, growth industries in Boston, um, you know, a lot of these new companies that are, are funneling into Boston are, are really moving in because of the talent base, which is developed through these, these universities. So it is a great resource on a number of different levels. Okay, final question, most important question. How badly will the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl this year? <laughs> They'll be a negative land. No, uh, <laughs> Tampa Bay. I, I don't. I don't know. I think Patriots. You know, as long as Tom Brady is is uh, you know with with ball in hand, we're we're gonna have good luck moving forward. Yeah. The rest of us are getting quite tired of the Patriots, but you, you you're quite lucky. But thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Hey everyone, I am back with another graduate student here during the day of presentations. It's Chanel Williams. Hey Chanel, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. Okay, tell me the title and what you talked about during your presentation. It's called Imagining Futures, Scenario Planning, and Climate Adaptation in Star of the Sea. That is quite a mouthful. (laughs) Please, without taking too long, explain what that all means. My partner and I, Mariana, we kind of just fleshed out the three predominant scenarios that are being discussed, accommodate, protect, retreat, and we looked at the financing and stakeholder analysis and design for that. Okay, so everyone goes through this process where the critics weigh in at the end, mm-hmm. and I wasn't there to, to see yours. What, what kind of feedback did you get? So there was feedback about bringing in the personal element, which is challenging because our vision is up to 2100 for the managed retreat scenario, but there was a lot of agreement that these conversations need to be had and that managed retreat um, should be considered more fully. East Boston has its own character and Mm -hmm. flair, and so Mm -hmm. here are these Harvard students coming in to, I don't even know how to describe it, but, you know, help. What was the interaction? Was there ever any friction? Was everyone sort of open, you know, armed about it? Yeah. I was on um, an intercept team, so we went to Shaw's Market in East Boston, and we were asking them about climate change, and a lot of the responses were more like, I'm trying to stay in my neighborhood, trying to like be here despite gentrification. And so there was a friction about what we were trying to address in the future because planners are always forward-thinking and the concerns of the community today. So there are a lot of different presentations that try to um, address gentrification as well as climate change, or some address climate change, some address gentrification. That's become a pattern with talking with the community is like when you bring up climate change, it's this esoteric topic. It's like, what do you think of an alien invasion? How do do you respond to that? We honestly just gave them pamphlets and we're like, well, this should be, you should be thinking about this. Like 20 years from now, who knows what like sea levels will be like. Who knows if you'll be able to live here even though you want to stay here because like if flood zone insurance changes, that's going to raise the cost of living here. So we honestly just gave them pamphlets and we're like, we understand that you're concerned about gentrification, but you should also be thinking about this like long term for staying in your community. Okay, so do you see a career in adaptation or climate change planning in any way when you're done here? I do. I'm from the Bahamas, so I experience like hurricanes all the time. And I would like to be a policy advisor for them and also work in New Orleans. So I'm a big climate change adaptation, resiliency person. Okay, so that gives me an idea. You need to go back to the Bahamas and find a collaborator and a sponsor and bring America Daps and we'll go and do a Bahamas episode, okay? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, congratulations and thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I'm back with Gretchen Rubikin. Hey, Gretchen, how are you? Well, thanks. How are you? So who are you with? I'm with the Boston Society of Architects. Okay, so you work with this group called NOAA. Could you give a little bit of background of your organization and that group? Sure. Um, so as the Boston Society of Architects and the BSA Foundation, we are the the chapter of professional architects in Boston, representing Boston and the region. And we are, have been working with NOAA for the last few years in East Boston in bringing some technical design capacity um, to their larger efforts around resiliency. What's the acronym stand for? For NOAA? Yeah. The Neighborhood of Affordable Housing. Today, we're here seeing these students present their different topics. Were you involved at all during the semester? Yes. I was one of the people early on who helped set up the semester. Um, because the way that the Boston Society of Architects brings technical assistance is by convening and connecting um, both design professionals and students within the broader Boston design community, you know, 
to various clients, such as uh, NOAA and the Neighborhood of Affordable Housing. So I was involved early on in talking with Stephen and Kathy and Dan about the prospect of working in East Boston, about the prospect of studying resiliency, and really the need um, for the students to dive into this work this semester. So can, can you maybe describe East Boston uh, a little bit? So, But yes, I actually am a former East Boston resident. When I moved back to Boston in 2007, I was coming here actually from Brooklyn. As, a, as an architect, I was looking for a place that was affordable, that was on public transit, where not everybody looked like me, and East Boston was that. It is a wonderfully diverse, vibrant, lively community. It has always been predominantly immigrant community. Who those immigrants are change over time, but that still is very much part of its identity today. You know, it's officially low and moderate income community. English is not the first language of many of its residents. And so it faces some of those social, social and cultural and economic challenges um, that go along with those things, as well as sort of the climate impacts. East Boston was originally five islands that have been, have been knit together over time or landfilled over time. And as one looks at the projections of sea level rise, that's the way it wants to go back to being. So do you sense the community of East Boston has are appreciating what the threat down the pipeline is? I think there are a number of people in East Boston who are very aware of some of the climate challenges that they're facing because there are some of those that are starting to be felt today. There's anecdotal stories of basements that are flooding the Greenway floods regularly. Um, the parking lot of the Shaw's supermarket, which is the only grocery store for this neighborhood of 40,000 people, gets waves lapping its parking lot on the annual high tide or king tide. So we're starting to see that water coming in now. And so it's not a far leap to think about what might be in the very near future. So we've seen some presentations today. Do you have a sense that these will be practical recommendations that would might be implementable? I think there's a whole range of presentations that we're seeing today. So some of them, yes, are, are practical and implementable. Some of them may not be immediately implementable, but they will spark ideas that are. There's a, there's lots of kernels of thinking here and some extraordinary analysis that helps stimulate the larger conversation. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We have just finished listening to a couple of the presentations, and I am talking to one of the students who have just finished. Hi. Um, my name is Claire Summers, and I'm a first-year urban planning student here. Okay, and so you just gave a presentation. Congrats to that. I think you did a great job. Really briefly, what was the title, and what were you talking about? Sure. So the title of my presentation was EB Home, East Boston's Housing Stability and Resilience Toolkit. And we created a toolkit that encourages and incentivizes homeowners to invest in their home. There were some critics in the audience, and were you surprised by any of the questions? Not particularly. We've done a bunch of these um, reviews so far, and I knew some of the critics who were there, and I've spoken to them and heard feedback from them, so I kind of had a feeling of what kind of feedback they would give. It's hard to describe everything that you talked about, but there was a sort of recommendation that you would hire some folks to work within the community of East Boston. There'd be a coordinator and there'd be all these resources about helping them plan with getting rain barrels or flooding. And so it was just sort of a, a toolkit for local residents to tap into. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so is there interest? I mean, have you talked to people? Do you think something like this would get funded? Yeah. So there were actually a couple of folks in the audience who were especially interested, people from the um, planning agency here in Boston and from Neighborhood of Affordable Housing, which is the nonprofit that we've been working with throughout the semester. And they were especially interested, which was surprising. They thought this might be something that could actually come to fruition. So I asked a question related to how you prioritize the decisions where you don't dedicate resources. And so some of the conversations I I've had, it seems sometimes climate change and that whole issue is lost as you're dealing with some of the residents. And I get it. They've got other things on their mind. But do you feel if you were able to, this this organization that actually was created and you had a coordinator, do you really feel climate change would be sort of front and center in how they interacted with the community? Climate change would definitely be one of the primary goals or dealing with climate change would be one of the primary goals for the program. It might not be the way that it might not be the topic that the EB Home coordinator would talk about when they were talking to the community. It would be more kind of personal goals, stuff like savings and protecting their home and creating a more beautiful neighborhood. So just one more question. 
Are you almost done? Well, a couple more questions, but are you almost done with the, your program here? I have one more year. So what's next? <laughs> I don't know. Come on, give me something. Next year, I'll be... Um, well, next, this summer, I have an internship with the Department of Neighborhood Development here at the city of Boston. So do you want to stay involved with adaptation planning, climate change planning? Is that an area that interests you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have more specific interests within urban planning related to real estate development and urban design and the relationship between the two. But I think climate change and adaptation planning will always be kind of an angle through which I look at those issues. Okay, well, congratulations again. Must be a big relief and good luck. Thanks. Hey, everybody. I'm back again. I'm talking with another student here. It's Sanjay Say. Sanjay, tell me where you're at, what kind of student you are. Hi, I'm a student here in the Masters of Urban Planning program at the Graduate School of Design, and I'm also a student in the Masters of Public Administration program at the Kennedy School. Okay, so your big day today was doing your presentation, so you are now done. What did you talk about, and could you briefly describe what the overall purpose was? Sure. So, uh, you know, in a bumper sticker, our proposal was saying, okay, Developers like to think in market cycles. They don't think in carbon cycles. So how do we bring the risk associated with adaptation into the present so that they change their behavior and they develop in a way that's not going to put us at risk in the future? So our main proposal was saying, okay, how about cap and trade system essentially for risk created by a state commission that finances adaptation infrastructure throughout a metropolitan region? Okay, and so that sounds like a really cool concept, but that's still a hell of a bumper sticker. I'm not sure anybody really that. Okay, and so you just had the presentation. What kind of feedback did you get on the idea? So I think people were optimistic that climate change is one of those things that could really help us figure out how to govern as a region instead of as a bunch of fragmented cities. And climate change proposals like this are potentially good to make sure that states and cities are making progress in a tough political time. Some of the critical feedback was trying to put a price on risk that goes so far into the future and trying to bring that into the present to change developer behavior. You know, that sounds kind of utopian. So there was some pushback in terms of, you know, is this really a feasible idea to try to use cap and trade, to try to use market mechanisms to reduce risk? And I think that's fair and that's something we need to work on as we develop this proposal further. Okay. And to me, the challenge, too, of putting value on risk is that once that value has been recognized and dollars are being spent, does that influence the risky behavior and is there opportunities for people exploiting that? And what if people are continuing to take risks that they shouldn't? Do penalties come into the equation? Does that factor into your cap and trade? Definitely. So. I think you're, you're raising a good point, which is kind of what's, what's the second order effect, right? If we're going to put a price on risk, are we just pushing development to other areas that are, all, that are riskier? Right. And so that's one of the reasons we came up with a regional approach is let's say Boston tried to put a cap on risk. All the all the development would just be pushed to Cambridge, Somerville, Winthrop, maybe places that are less likely to be able to adapt in the future. And so one of the governance strategies we, we came up with was saying, let's try to figure out how we govern together as the 14 or 27 cities around the Boston Harbor and find a way so that we're not competing on our regulations. We're making sure that we coordinate our regulations so that we're not creating these externalities in terms of who is going to adapt or who isn't going to adapt. You know, for my listeners out there who are not here, it's kind of hard to visualize all these interesting but very complex subjects. And so hopefully some of this is going to be made available. But what's next for you? Do you think you still stay involved with climate change, with adaptation? I mean, that's a good question. I'll, I'll be here for the next two years. And then, you know, after that, my background's in climate change adaptation work in New York. So, you know, maybe back there, but also the coastline around the world is is endangered. And I think that's kind of where we need to be putting our energy. So that's kind of what I'm going to be focusing on. Lots of coastline. Just pick a spot on the map and head out, right? I mean, there's a lot of, lot of opportunity out there. So hopefully more people are inspired to work on this issue. All right. Well, thanks for joining me and congratulations. Thank you. Hey, everybody. We are almost at the end of the day here. And so I thought it'd be great to wrap up with Dr. Jesse Keenan. And if people remember, Jesse was on the podcast a few months ago. It was a great episode. He's here at Harvard University. And I just wanted to kind of break things down with him. Hey, Jesse, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Doug. Thanks for taking the time to come and join us. 
No, this was a real honor and a privilege to come up here and see what's going on. But first off, I just I want to talk about what we saw today. So what what stood out for you? Yeah, I think there's a number of projects that took on an understanding of specific vulnerable populations. A number of projects that took on uh, alternative communication strategy, everywhere from wayfinding on the ground to apps and uh, other modes of public policies that engage people about climate change from a hazard point of view, um, as well as a kind of social network point of view. We saw multi-purpose types of infrastructure. We saw redundancy in transportation systems. We saw a lot of interventions that, that were really fully integrated to address a broader spectrum of vulnerabilities beyond the sort of immediacy, in this case, East Boston beyond the immediacy of flooding and inundation and sea level rise, but really look at a broad spectrum of vulnerabilities relating to everything from, you know, single mothers and transportation to um, affordable housing and how all that really is interrelated in ways that are um, sometimes difficult to appreciate from afar. So what I thought was very encouraging is I had these conversations one-on-one with the students. I would ask some of them, are they going to get involved with adaptation in their careers? So whatever form that might take, and pretty much the vast majority of them said that they were, which, you know, we're going to have this whole new generation of adaptation professionals in very interesting areas. And so hopefully people like you are continuing to mentor them because it's it's not quite clear where they go. I mean, there's more opportunities, but what would you sort of say to them that what what happens next for them? Yeah, in my sense is that their sort of innate do-gooderness to contribute to society, and that's consistent with planner, you know, uh, students and urban planning and the like. The reality is that they won't go off and do adaptation planning. I, you know, ad- as adaptation professionalizes as a, as a sort of independent uh, discipline in a way, um, it will have a, a set of methodologies and skills and geography which will be the beneficiaries and the objects of, of all that professionalization. But, you know, what I think is beneficial for them and for everyone else in society is that people who are in urban planning that will go on to specialize in housing, that will go to specialize in transportation and economic development, the like, they will have some training in adaptation planning and climate change planning. And that will be one of multiple areas of sensitivity that they will have to balance in their career. So in a way, I don't see it that we're narrowing down a class of adaptation planners and climate change planners, but we're actually diversifying a a broader spectrum of professional practice. And I think that actually reflects um, at least where the research tells us, but you know, where the, where we are in the real world, which is that we don't go out and create climate change plans. And we don't, I mean, we may have plans, but we, we very rarely have climate change projects and things that are driven in the name of resiliency and adaptation. Most of the time, what we're talking about are the conventions of existing plans, existing projects, and how we give consideration as a as a type of sensitivity to sea level rise to flooding to heat waves to a broader spectrum of impacts from climate change so in that way it's about mainstreaming not just in terms of public policy and public discourse but actually the professions uh, of the built environment okay so i probably have already thanked you earlier in this episode for inviting me it, it was a real honor to come and just hang out with these people. These are just incredibly smart people doing cutting edge work. And I, and I, that's no exaggeration, but I think you had your own sort of ambitions of what we might, you know, with this podcast, I found that I thought I knew a lot about adaptation. I was just scratching the surface. It's been a journey for me as all these different guests come on. And now here I'm at Harvard learning a ton. And so what want that this is going to be a podcast, what value do you see that I'm covering this? Yeah, so I would say, you know, a lot of the projects um, brought some degree of innovation, something that was interesting, but just an, an equal number really brought l- very little to the table. They may have had some good ideas here or there, but their understanding of resiliency and adaptation um, were as equally as flawed or biased as anywhere else that when one would engage in in practice or in the real world, if you will. And I think that that's a really important lesson um, because they are struggling in the same way that people on the ground in cities and counties and municipalities across the country, we're all struggling to understand where do we prioritize? Where do we wait? What's important? What's not important? Over what timeline? Who pays? Who benefits? And these fundamental questions, we will, it's, it's a, it's about trial and error. We're going to fail many more times than we'll ever succeed. And what I wanted you to see and, and your, your listeners to engage in was a type of field exercise that, that in a way simulated these questions. So, you know, some of the work, it's not so good. Some of the work, it's great. But at the end of the day, what they're, what they're, 
propositioning are the questions about trade-offs, the questions about agency, about power, about vulnerability reduction, about really central issues that are going to define climate change planning in the future. Okay. My concern about this podcast is that I think of all the different voices people have heard by the time they're hearing you speak, they're going to get a lot of great information, but it's still probably just a small window into this broader process that occurred. Is there any advice, any sort of, if someone's out there going, I want to learn more, I want to kind of get what's going on here. Is there anything that they can do? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that there are networks out there. Um, the U, the um, U.S. Community Resilience Toolkit, or I'm sorry, the U.S. Community Resilience Panel and the U.S. Resilience Toolkit in particular are entities that I'm engaged with in my professional or public service capacity, rather, that are really conduits of information, of tools, of best practices, of case studies that I think um, we can all draw upon and apply at a lot of different scales and a lot of different scenarios and geographies. So, you know, in my mind, these kind of networks of information that are constantly out there collecting best practices and case studies and just trial and error and seeing what works and what doesn't is really, uh, I think for most listeners, the best way to source this stuff. And in the U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit, I think, um, uh, which is operated at, uh, uh, it's an interagency group, but primarily operated uh, by NOAA, uh, National Oceanographic Admi uh, Atmospheric Administration is really, in my mind, the central uh, database, if you will, for, for very accessible uh, information that isn't overly, it's not presented in a way that's overly technical. It's, you know, you can engage it no matter what type of user you are, whether you're a casual listener who's interested, who, you know, drives a bus or a truck and is interested about, you know, traffic planning and, or if you're someone who, um, you know, is a floodplain manager, there's a wide spectrum of resources that I think address an equally wide or equally diverse set of audiences. All right. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me again. This was, I think it's a great for my listeners, obviously great for me. I'm up here learning a lot. Accomplished three things. I got to dig in at the New England Patriots. I didn't make any goodwill hunting jokes and I avoided New England clam chowder. So it, this has been a big victory all around. But any final thoughts, Jesse? Thanks for coming up, and I hope that in many ways this is a first of many opportunities for you to do out, be out in the field and, and bring the podcast to the ground where there's a certain texture, material, you know, conflict, because that's what we all need to understand is what, not what's working, but what, where it's not working. And, and your show is really central to that global discourse. That would be great. Those listeners out there, they want to invite Bali, Bora Bora. There's got to be some great adaptation. But on that note, thanks. Hey, we're back. This is the end of the day. We are the, the after seminar party, and I'm talking with a few more folks. And I'm with... Kanan Thiruvengadam. I asked you to pronounce that because I know I wasn't going to do well. So who do you work with? I work with NOAA, Neighborhood of Affordable Housing in East Boston. Okay, so what's their role in all this? They are the interface with the East Boston community. They've been working with the community on various social and environmental fronts for a long, long time. So through that, they've gained the ability to represent the community, also to find ways to engage with the community really well on various topics. So a group like Harvard, who might not be a perfect fit for East Boston, they come and find you, and you're sort of there to kind of make those introductions. Yes, and the city does the same thing. City of Boston works through NOAA as well on its flood resiliency and other kinds of climate-related projects with East Boston. So what is NOAA really doing on climate change right now, independent of what we saw these, the last day? NOAA is doing a couple of things. One, it's called climate care. It's improving the resiliency within East Boston so people would learn about, adapt to, as well as design their future in a way that has protection from climate change, as well as co-benefits for the community. Okay, so we saw so many presentations today. You must have been scribbling notes. Were there things, because you've worked with them all semester, but were there projects that you're like, we can do this, we can do this soon? Yes, oh yes. They've developed websites, for example, that are much more accessible to the community. I can easily see East Boston youth going to these sites and then saying, oh, I live in Eagle Hill, and click on Eagle Hill in the map, and I live in a three-story building, and so what should I do? And get very beneficial information, useful information, actionable information then and there. Websites like that, that Graduate School of Design students have partially built, and I can't wait for those websites to be completed. 
I don't hear a lot about any community organizing groups that are getting down and, and involved in climate change. So that's really cool. And I think a lot of people out there would be interested in learning more. What could, how can they learn more about NOAA? They can go to noacdc.org. And we're on Facebook as NOACDC, CDC meaning Community Development Corporation. And we also have a Facebook page, East Boston Environmental, and we have a Spanish version, El Ambiente Grupo Latino, and we all, we're also on Twitter. So basically looking for NOAA, N-O-A-H, Neighborhood of Affordable Housing, on Google or Bing should get you there. Okay, and I'll have links to it on my, on my show notes for this podcast. Any final thoughts before we close this out? Well, this is the largest and most critical topic for the next upcoming generations. And I'm so glad that young people in a prestigious institution like Harvard are involved. And they're also doing this in a down-to-earth reality kind of fashion by talking to regular folks in East Boston, figuring out their everyday problems and trying to connect tomorrow's problem or what is seen as tomorrow's problem, which is climate change, to today's problem, which could be gentrification or other kinds of housing issues or other economic issues that people have. Okay, thanks so much, and let's go eat and get some beer. Let's go. Hey, everybody, this is the end of the day. People have wine in their hands and they've got food in their bellies and they're all relieved. And so I'm here with one of the class organizers and instructors. Hey there, how's it going? Going great. Could you introduce yourself, please? Uh, sure. So my name is Daniel Dioka, and I'm a uh, associate professor in practice here at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. I heard from Stephen and from Kathy about sort of the overall structure of the course, what the sort of the goals were, but I just want to touch base with one of the organizers and say, how did you think it went today? I think it went extremely well. I'm in a great mood. It's not just because I've had three glasses of wine and because the semester's over. It's because I think it was generally a really interesting day. I think the students really did a great job, and I think we had some amazing critics who gave some great feedback, and uh, I just I had a great day. Okay, so I obviously did not get to see everyone's presentation, just no one could. And I, my impression was when you started this course, is like if you could describe one overall goal, it's like help East Boston adapt to climate change. Is that an accurate sort of very generic way of saying what they're trying to do? Yes. Do you feel like the presentation's delivered on that? Yes, although I should amend what I said earlier. It's uh, There's really two goals of the semester. I'm sure Stephen and Kathy described this, right? So we're not looking exclusively at climate change. Although I know that that's what that's, this podcast is about, so I want to sort of talk, talk about that chiefly. But it's also, uh, we were looking at two storms, if you will. Uh, one, the effects of climate change, but also gentrification. It's a huge problem in East Boston, and there are a lot of people who are really afraid that they'll be displaced, and there are a lot of changes coming coming down the pike, and I think part of what we, want, what we wanted to do today is think about how we can ensure that the, the kind of positive changes benefit people who presently call East Boston home and uh, not just people who are looking to, to cash in. So this is a very tough needle to thread, and I heard this over and over again. Gentrification is an important issue, and it's probably a more important issue for people living there today. But climate change is also an important issue, and you know, are people just addressing one over the other, or do you feel like they captured both? Most of the projects, I, I would say, students tended to, you know, if, if it's a spectrum, I think sort of lean a little bit heavily on one or the other side of the spectrum. There are very few projects, I think, that where students said that my 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 role is to is to really address um, gentrification and climate change. Most of the projects really took one or one or the other challenges as their challenge. Where do you think these students will be in five years? What do you think they'll be doing? I can tell you where I, I don't know, um, but I can tell you where I'd like that I would love them to be. I think I think that these are really really bright and really thoughtful uh, students who have a lot of good ideas, and I would love to see them move to places like East Boston and move, you know, the, the kind of work we do in these studios, even though we put a premium on in community engagement and spend half the semester talking to people, at the end of the day, it's, in, it's an insufficient amount of kind of local engagement. And I would love to see these students move to the, these kinds of places and, you know, join teams on the ground to kind of create the change that we need to create kind of from the bottom up. So I just had a, whether that's East Boston or who knows where, I, I, but I, what I really like to encourage students to do is to just, um, you know, move to a place, become really invested as a member of that community, and then sort of bring their expertise to bear 
as a member of that community, whether that means uh, that they're sort of really involved working in a planning department or working for the local department of transportation or, or just working as an engaged activist citizen. I think they really have a lot to offer, but I think that they, uh, one of the things that they're learning this semester is that they, with their good ideas, they can't, the good, the good ideas aren't enough. They need to mobilize people and sort of organize and uh, get a lot of people organized around these ideas to sort of, sort of make them happen. Okay, so I'm assuming you're going to do this again next year? Yep. Can any community out there, any city, internationally, domestically, contact you and be one of your focus cities? Yeah, please do. You can email me. You can look me up on the on the Harvard website. And I think we're, uh, you know, for this particular class, we look to work locally. So this is really restricted to, we usually work in gateway cities in the Boston region. For this particular project, we like to pick a place that's close to the design school so students can spend a lot of time in the community that they're studying. But, you know, we do other classes at, at the school where we look uh, at communities all across the world, and we're always looking for good um, initiatives to work on. So, yes, by all means, feel free to email. If you think you could benefit from having uh, a couple dozen Harvard uh, Design School students think about some particular issue that's plaguing your community, please uh, feel free to email me. Well, if you're going to do adaptation again and the sort of similar thing, may I suggest challenging yourself, maybe a city like Lubbock, Texas, or Birmingham, Alabama, and we get these Harvard students that just kind of go out into the community. So, yeah, challenge yourself next time. Yeah, Birmingham, Lubbock, if you're listening, it's always it's always better when we're invited to come to a place as opposed to us reaching out to that place. So uh, give us a call. All right, great. Any final thoughts? Just, well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming and hanging out with us. And I uh, just want to say that I think hopefully the students learned a lot this semester, but I think the three of us who led the, the studio really learned a ton from, from these students, from the people we sort of engage with in East Boston, and, uh, and from our, our clients. I don't know if you had a chance to talk to NOAA, Neighborhood of Affordable Housing. And it's been a really fun uh, semester, and uh, thanks. All right, thanks. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap to a very exciting episode. Thanks to everyone at Harvard who welcomed me with open arms to do this recording. Thanks to Jesse Keenan for originally inviting me to the studio seminar and being my gracious host. Thanks to Kathy, Stephen, and Daniel for going way and above and beyond to integrate me into the day's events. And thanks to the students for accommodating me. I was just one more layer of stress on what was already a stressful time. Okay, I wanted to share some takeaways. I'm very encouraged to see universities reaching out to communities like this and for the enthusiastic response from those communities. It's a hard needle to thread to be a resource without coming off like you know what's best for a community. Having a university with Harvard's reputation show up at your doorstep, that can be a challenge and it looks like the Graduate School of Design handled it well. A common theme that the students encountered in East Boston was that the community's immediate needs outweighed any longer-term climate change concerns. This is totally understandable, but doesn't mean you shouldn't try to elevate the larger issue of climate change to these communities. Harvard is full of interesting, committed, and very resourceful people. For those of you who have a chip on your shoulders about Harvard, get over it. You bring that many smart students, professors, and resources together, and you start to really achieve some interesting and special things. I hope any planners out there listening to this podcast take note and follow up. They have a ton of information to share, learn from their experiences. I was also encouraged that most of the students were interested in careers in adaptation. And, but as Dr. Keenan noted, they likely won't do it directly. The field of adaptation needs to evolve to make sure these future professionals have opportunities in the field. The career pathways are emerging, but it's not quite there yet. For you grant-making foundations, I hope you see a role for yourselves in harnessing this adaptation interest in young professionals. And finally, I am incredibly proud of myself. I did not ask one question or make one joke using a goodwill hunting reference. It was very hard to resist. I even visited the famous Harvard bar used in the movie, but I held back. So how do you like them apples? Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join and I'll preview right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. Check out the new website at americadaps.org. And again, please consider supporting the podcast. I'll be going on location more in the coming year and it requires ongoing support from all of you. I hope you consider donating. You can do a recurring donation or a one-time donation. The page is in the show notes. Okay, adapters, do me a favor this week. And I asked you this the last time. Go find another adapter and let them know about this podcast. Let's keep growing the number of adapters out there. I hope you all have a great week. Until next time. <laughs>